So with that, I'll just stop talking and start praying, and we'll look at our Bible passage. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I do want to pray, uh, especially for uh, Jan and, and Fran and Tom and their family, Lord, as they um, suffer um, a loss in their family. Father, we pray that you would encourage them only as you can. Lord, we thank you um, for this passage today. Lord, as we study this text, I pray, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning. Lord, that you would help us to understand what it says. Lord, that we would understand its, uh, its meaning and, Lord, how it pl- applies. Father, we all come from varying places in our lives. We're all going through different things. And, Lord, we ask that your spirit would meet each one where we are, that you would help us to, to know who you are um, at, a, at a deeper, more personal level. And, Father, that um, you would give us hope, encouragement. And, Father, that we would um, be able to walk away uh, today and the coming days, Lord, um, a, a joyful people, even though we endure um, many distressing things. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we need your help. We ask that your spirit would guide us. We pray that the book would come alive to us. Lord, we long to know you uh, deeper. Father, we pray that uh, our knowledge of you would result in transform lives. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So I sort of broke this passage from last week. And verse 6 begins with these five words, in this you greatly rejoice. A a letter, 1 Peter, was written. The whole thing was written in its entirety and delivered to a group of people in the location of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Peter was in Rome. Nero was the emperor. He had just been put on his throne. Nero was, in every respect, a crazy man. He would go on an execution 
spree, uh, wreaking havoc to, to the known world. Peter wrote from Rome knowing that his wrath was coming to Christians. It had already um, come in, in many ways. Christians were, uh, for sport, being thrown into the Colosseums to face wild dogs and lions for entertainment's sake. Uh, parties and streets were lit with Christians being burned alive on, on posts. And Peter uh, wrote to the early church to encourage them, to give them hope. And early in his letter here, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. And the question is, what, what, what is he talking about? Where are we picking up from? Last week, we studied verses 3 through 5, which I'll, I will review. <clears throat> last week, we started with verse 3. The theme of last week was, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's from this praising of God the Father that everything else flowed. He said he, he's blessing the God and Father. Blessed was a eulogy, a, a, to eulogize, to speak well of, to, to share about. And one of the things that he shared was, according to his great mercy, that God is merciful. We touched on Peter and how, how his posture towards God was that the thing he praised him about was his mercy, which changes our posture, it changes our approach of God, recognizing that we are sinful, we are not worthy, that God is holy, God is just. We have relationship with him because of his kindness, because of his mercifulness, withholding something that we deserve. He goes on to say, in his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to attain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So he says, through this being born again through this faith in Christ. We're born to a living hope that there's life in Jesus. There's hope because Jesus rose from the dead to a salvation, uh, let's see here, to obtain an inheritance. He talks about inheritance. When I think of an inheritance, today what that means in my mind is somebody died, they can't take their stuff with them and they signed a piece of paper or there's family lines that the the government says, I'm entitled to their stuff. And then I get to have that stuff to squander or save or whatever until I die, and then that stuff gets passed on to somebody else. That's not the inheritance that Peter describes. He talks about an inheritance where you die, and then you go there, and the inheritance is very different than an earthly inheritance, which Jesus spoke of in the Sermon of the Mount, of the riches in this life, they can be stolen, they rust, they rot away, moth can destroy them. He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That was on the Sermon on the Mount, and here Peter says, there's an inheritance waiting for you, and this inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, it's reserved for you. The you is the believers, it's us who have trusted in Christ who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He ends with this, this idea of salvation. This word will be used three times in our immediate context today. 
And so from this idea of salvation, being spared, saved from the wrath of God through faith in Christ, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. And rejoice is exactly what, what it looks like in the angel. This is, this is, this is a, an emotion, a contentment, a, a, a happiness almost, a, a joy. I know you're not supposed to define a word with a, a word, but, but joy is just, it is, it's unique. And I don't feel bad stumbling for this because in verse 8 it says, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible. So I'm struggling in expressing this inexpressible joy. But I'll work my way there. And so in this you greatly rejoice. So I ended last Sunday with this in mind. My week started to unfold Monday night, obviously was rough. By Tuesday, Wednesday, I start, you know, feeling sick, which was like the least of the issues, you know, but this is my time to let you guys all know about how rough my week was. <clears throat> I, I like, I, I, I literally, Wednesday night, Anna's sick. I hop in the car with Grace saying, I can go to Bible study. I get in the car and I start going, ooh, I'm really woozy. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, let's turn off the car. I'm like, we're not going, sorry, kiddo, we're not going to church. And, uh. I call Rick, say, hey, I'm sick. I'm, I think what I need to do is I need to take some NyQuil and I just need to put myself under for a couple hours and hopefully I'll be well in the morning. So I, I uh, dosed up with my NyQuil. It wasn't truly NyQuil. It was Costco brand, but that's, again, another story. And, and uh, I was out. And around 5.30, my phone starts ringing, but I didn't, I didn't hear it. I think by the time the third or fourth person called me, I was having one of those dreams, like, I think I'm hearing vibrating. What is going on? Like, what's happening? And I look over, and I see a lieutenant from the, from the police department who is the lieutenant of the SWAT team. And so I kind of, my, when I see him calling me at off hours, I kind of go, yeah, we're going on a SWAT call out, baby. Like, it's like, hello, what's, what's, hey, what's going on? I have no idea what's going on, but, you know, when somebody wakes you up, you don't want to make them feel bad. Sorry. Are you awake? Oh, yeah, I've been awake for the last three hours. I'm wide awake. I'm in my third cup of coffee. What's going on? And he said, hey, uh, I'm here with a couple of the other lieutenants at the department, and uh, we had an officer murdered yesterday, and we need you to come in. And then I was like, what did you just say? Like, what's going on? He's like, we had, an, we had an officer murdered by her husband. All the details are sort of coming out. We need a chaplain to go be with the family, and we need a bunch of chaplains here. And so I said, okay, I got a chaplain to head up to Riverside to go be with the, the, the mom and the daughter of the officer that was killed. And then we got everybody in, and basically I spent all day Thursday, all day Friday at the police department. Um, and I remember kind of in the midst of this, during one of these events, I remember calling Anna on the way there and just sort of like, I don't know how people, like, I, I'm like, I know I'm called to do this, and I, it's like, I feel like I, I, I'm, I love serving the Lord in this capacity, but I could see how this could just, like, wear on people, like, just, just the weight of the suffering. And, and I've had these verses sort of just, like, you know, tinkering around in my brain all week, and... 
and it dawned on me either Thursday or Friday, whatever day was the 24th. I have no idea what day it was, but I remember kind of looking down at my phone to schedule something, and I saw that it was July 24th, and it just sort of dawned on me. I'm like, this is the anniversary of when Cal passed away. And since then, Cal has passed away. George, who was a pastor here, passed away. Then his wife passed away. Then Fran's brother-in-law passed away. And now this. And it just was just like I have a hard time explaining the feelings and the weightiness. Now, I certainly know that I'm not saying that my story is a sad story. Certainly for any person who is closer to these people than I was, they are having a terribly difficult time. But as a pastor or a person being led into people's tragedies, you see the weight and you really identify with Jesus. Uh, the shortest verse of the New Testament, or really the whole Bible, probably the only verse I've, I've successfully memorized is John 11:35, that Jesus wept. And the setting there is that Jesus saw death. He, it was Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. But even knowing that, looking at the weight of suffering, there was just great sorrow and great pain. And death has, there's something about death that is more than we can handle. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity into our hearts. We were never created to die death came as a result of sin. And so we who have eternity in our hearts, when we're faced with death, it's more than we can even deal with. And so I'm going through my week and I'm thinking, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials I don't think I have the gift of great observation or discernment, but I think it's pretty easy to see this. In this, you greatly rejoice. If you study or you look at the meaning behind the word distressed, the word there literally means to be sad, to be grieved, to have deep-seated anguish. In my mind, Deep-seated pain, grieving, anguish, sorrow doesn't uh, sit well with joy, rejoicing, happiness, content. They, am I alone, or is it, can I get a witness here? Like I wish I went to another time. You know, like this is like it just doesn't compute. And so all week in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. I love the if necessary. Is there any human that has not gone through suffering? No. It is ne- it's absolutely necessary because God's doing a work. And the kind of suffering that these people were going through wasn't just, see, death is something that that's kind of human. That's like, whether they say death and taxes, those are two guarantees. They were going through like what's happening in northern Iraq right now. That, that our brothers and sisters in Christ in northern Iraq are being executed for their faith, being told convert to Islam or be executed for your faith. This is what they were facing. But we all identify with suffering. I, 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 various trials. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed, grieved, sorrowful. 
by various, manifold, many. Uh, there's all sorts of different. We could spend, I don't know, I think we could go a good week if it was like, hey, guys, we're going to do like as long as we can go a marathon of just saying stuff that we can share about trials. I, I think we could go a week, 24-7. Like, I think, I, I mean, I would just start with the newspaper. First story, that's a trial. I mean, we can pull up a bunch of papers and, and we go from life experiences. There are various trials. There are many, many trials. And yet in the midst of these trials, Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. And so there's this sort of this counterbalance of salvation, what we have in Christ that allows us to rejoice even though in this present life we're suffering through a variety of trials. I believe that we are very complex creatures. The Bible tells us that we as humans are created in the image of God and His likeness. And God has the ability to have a wide range of emotions simultaneously. We as humans are able to be joyful and yet sorrowful simultaneously. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. I don't want anybody to raise their hand. <clears throat> But I know that we all have heard, and I'm even guilty of saying in the past, God won't give you more than you can handle. Amen? I can't tell you how many times I've had people call me or text me or email and say, hey, man, I'm about to do a Bible study, and I really, what I need is that passage, that verse that says God won't give you more than you can handle. And I always hate to be the guy that breaks bad news to say, well, that's just, there, it is not in the Bible anywhere. Like, nowhere. And if you really um, take it out more than, uh, if you take the logic behind it and follow it through, what that's saying is, God won't give me more than I can handle. That means I'm like a, a, a pretty competent person, or whatever. Wherever your competent, competent, competency, competency, competency. Doing the hand motion and talking, that was too much for me. <laughs> competency, Here your gifting, your abilities, whatever. Some of us may be here, some of us are up here, I'm probably like here. Wherever that is, God will fill your life with stuff not to exceed that point, right? And what that's saying is saying is that we're, we're independent, we're strong, we don't need help. Whatever's been dished out to me, I can handle it because God is not going to give me more than I can handle. And it's this sort of this, it's almost really, quite frankly, like, a, 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 I don't think it's meant this way, but it really turns out to be quite like a prideful, like sort of like self-resilient sort of attitude that we humans like. But in looking at this, I, I, to kind of lead this out, an interesting thought, somebody pointed out to me in one of my studies, this word various, manifold, it's a, it's a Greek word that's really fun to say, poikoloi. You guys want to say it? Poikoloi. It kind of halfway reminds me of eating poi in Hawaii and a koi pond, you know, like poi koloi. I think I must have good, like, memories of these two things, even though poi is not good tasting. But koi fish are fun, so poi koloi. Poi koloi means various or manifold. 
Peter only uses this word twice in all of his writings. If you'll turn with me over to 1 Peter 4.10, one of my favorite verses in all of, 1 Peter, in all of Peter, really, is the only other time this word poikoloi is used. And in 1 Peter 4.10, we read, as each one, that's us who are Christians, has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word poikoloi in this is manifold. Manifold grace of God. And it really, maybe because of where I was this week, I mean, literally, I've been like typing emails. We're going to do George and Evie's funeral this, this week, or I'm going to do it, but we're all going. And I'm trying to email Jan, George's daughter, and I can't get through emails without like bawling. I'm, I, just little things have been setting me off this week. And in the midst of this, being in a place of, of sort of sorrow, various trials, this struck me in a sort of certain way, manifold grace. I, see, I think of grace, we've always heard it defined as God's giving you something that you don't deserve, right? Grace. I think of it as like a thing. But I've never really considered that, that there's a, a variety or like a, the manifold wisdom of God. I think of, you know, probably because my wife likes the play. So often I tell Bible stories and I hear songs start playing. So right now, as I think about the manifold grace of God, I think of Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat. You know, of many colors. There's the one song where they fly around. I don't know all the words, but I think of, you know, they describe this coat. And if you've been to the play, you've seen the coat or if you've seen the movie. There's all the different colors of the coat. And, and to me, it's like this image of God's grace. And when I think of this concerning the various trials and that this is the only other place he uses it in this word, and the idea that whatever trial you're going through, that God's grace or there is a variety of God's grace or a manif- like the manifold grace of God, that God can sort of complement your trial with grace. If you'll turn with me over to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul, who had suffered through something. We don't, there's all sort of speculation, but Paul describes this thorn in his flesh. Paul prayed three times he was told that God would heal him of this. Paul, the man who in Scripture was used by God to heal people when he himself has an ailment, whatever it was, he is not able to heal himself. And after praying three times to be healed, we pick up in verse 9, God's response to why he's not healing him. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. So I read this. You can go back to 1 Peter. Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. 
in pondering this verse, in this you greatly rejoice, although you're go- but distressed by various trials. For the one who knows Christ, when the trials come, I believe it's not our own strength. We, don't, we shouldn't say, or we should guard ourselves from saying, picking up myself by the bootstraps. God's not going to give me more than I can handle. I'm going to plow on. I think the appropriate response is, man, quite frankly, life is way more than I can handle. Like, just like, let's start with death and work backwards. Like, death? Can anybody here handle death? I'm a pastor, preacher. I'm not really like, I mean, I know we're supposed to say, oh, yeah, I really want to go for it. But I'm not really like looking to go launch into the afterlife. Like, I'll, I'll trust him to do that when a time comes. Because there's eternity in me. I wasn't created to die. I was created to live. And in him I have life. And so when I'm faced with death, it's more than I can handle. Amen? Marriage is more than I can handle. There's one amen. Only one amen there. My wife is over there. There's all sorts of things that I can't handle. But you know what? God says my grace is sufficient for you. And as you deal with these things, I will give you the grace that you need to endure it. As a pastor, being around people who have died or are dying has been a, a super, I don't even know what the word, uh, an incredible thing to be able to participate in families as they're diving, dying, not diving, as, and, and as a Christian, as a believer is dying, I've seen it more than on one occasion, this sort of supernatural sort of grace that they have as they're facing death. And I look at it and I think, it just doesn't make sense. How can you be so peaceful? How can you be so content? How can, it just doesn't make sense. But see, that's me looking at other people's trials. And I'm sure there are people that look at me and my trials and say, how do you deal with that? I don't know, I think God's like gifted me and he's put me in this place and he's giving me grace to sort of to get through the situation. And it's really been a beautiful... Uh, I probably should move on, but I won't just yet. Um, in this you greatly rejoice, salvation, that you have been redeemed. Even though for now, a little while, if you have been distressed by various trials, various trials will come. As we face these trials, we recognize that they are not just happenstance. Any trial that you're facing, God is greater than that trial, and God can give you the grace to endure it. The last part I want to touch on in this is Romans chapter 8, this great chapter of encouragement. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, there's a number of passages that the Christian really needs to come to understand or theology of suffering. How do you understand suffering? A lot of us are like Job's friends who think, oh, I'm suffering. That means I've done something wrong and God is punishing me, which it could be. I mean, your sin, there's consequences. You live in folly. There's going to be natural consequences. But then there are other trials and and and. and tribulations that we go through that are not necessary they're not because of our own doing and when you understand the big sovereign picture of God and that God is greater than this and you walk through this trial God is doing something through this I know it hurts I know it's painful 
but he's going to use this for a greater purpose. And in verse 18 of chapter 8, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, the struggles and the trials that we are going through. Paul was executed for his faith. Peter was executed for his faith. Most of the early church was executed for their faith. All of the apostles except for John. And John, they tried. He just survived. Paul says that whatever we're going through, it's not even comparable to the future glory that we have coming to us. Remember what Peter wrote about, an inheritance waiting for you that's it won't rust, it won't go away, it's preserved. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him whom subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait for it eagerly. Paul is painting this picture that we know that because Jesus rose from the grave, he conquered death. And we're walking by faith, trusting in what he said. He's proven himself to be faithful over and over and over again. By the end of this chapter, Paul hits this crescendo. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beautiful. Going back to 1 Peter, we now read this verse. In this you greatly rejoice. There's great joy knowing where we stand before God in Christ. He paid the penalty for us that our sin deserves so that we might have peace with God. Knowing that we have peace with God, we have the peace of God so that regardless of what we're going through in this life, distressed by various trials, we could still have joy. We view our trials differently. He goes on to say, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see this progression, so that the proof of your faith, I, and I love that the whole idea of your faith, that you come to Christ, you're at wherever you are, as you walk with Christ and you get to know him and you learn more about him and you have life experiences, we see that our faith matures. He uses the, the, the idea, this, this picture of, of gold being refined by fire. All through the New Testament, there's this picture of fire re, refining gold, allowing the impurities to go to the surface, and then you have the pure gold. Describing the Christian life, that as we walk with the Lord in this life and trials come, that 
that there's this refining process, there's this chipping away at us so that we become more like Jesus. And as I look back at my life and my growth as a Christian, I, I without, without even hesitation, I've grown most in my relationship with Christ through trials and suffering and pain and sorrow than in the high points. I mean, I've had plenty of high points. I'm like so thankful. God's been super good. But where I really grow is in the valleys, in the chipping away, in the refining, the, the, the what do I base my faith upon? On Thursday and Friday, it was late. I'd been there like a bunch, like it's a bad sign when the chaplains start getting goofy and we're trying to like, you know, hanging out with cops, they got a sort of a weird sense of humor anyhow, and then you start having a weird sense of humor. And, uh, but there was nothing really weird about what I'm about to say. It's, I'm tired. Um, um, I'd been there since 6 all day, and that was like Thursday night. I know there was like 8.30 briefing, 8.30 p.m. briefing, and it must have been about 10 o'clock at night. And one of the lieutenants basically looked at me and the chaplains. He said, hey, I just really want to thank you for being here for us during this time. It really, it like means a lot. And you don't even know your presence, what it's done for us. And the guy who said this, he was the guy who called the ambulance five months ago when Anna started having her placental abruption. And we go to the hospital. And literally when the surgeon says, you had one to five minutes before you would have lost both your wife and baby. And I'll never forget. And, and so seeing him, he said that. And of course, I responded back. He's like, hey, dude, you saved my wife and baby by making that phone call. I'll come anytime. Like, I, it's the least I can do. And they all laughed. But I go back to that moment. And I'll never forget that night. It was a Saturday night. We knew Anna was doing a couple weeks. Famous last words to Pastor Ben. Oh, man, I'm good for tomorrow, but things, uh, you might want to start preparing for next Sunday. And all week I had prepared on 2 Timothy about questioning really the foundation of my, my week, the old, like my faith, not my week, but that week what I was questioning, the only thing that kept coming back to me is, Gunnar, why did you come to faith in Christ? Did you come to me for your life being better, to, to making it more happy and joyful? Or did you come to me because you needed salvation for your sins? And I remember pondering this all week. And really, like the, before I told Ben that I was good for tomorrow, I was like, man, the only thing I'm getting for this is a tough passage. I'm like, the only thing I'm doing is like kind of throwing like, it's like a slap in the face to the prosperity gospel. And all I can think of is like, like the apostle Paul is trying to, to shake them out of their faith or to shake the foundation. And I remember that night, as Anna was being rushed into surgery, nobody was el else was there, and I just remember, it was like a movie, the doors shutting on me, and being in the, the hallway of Palomar Hospital all along. And I, I didn't hear God's voice, but I sensed him saying, if I take them, will you still worship me? And, you know, when you're having a conversation with God in that sort of moment, it's, it's a memorable sort of thing. I, uh, and I remember saying, well, Lord, I, if you take them, I think I will praise you tomorrow because I didn't come to you for any sort of prosperity. I came to you because I stand condemned for my sin. And if you take them, I hope that I can praise you tomorrow. Like, I've never been there. I've never lost my wife. Never lost, like, but if that happens, 
I at least want, like, that, I remember kind of saying, like, I really want to, God. <laughs> like, you know me, like, when you go through SEAL trains, like, everybody says they'll never quit. And I'm like, well, maybe I will quit. Like, I just don't know. I know from where I stand, I want to be able to praise you. And see, he says this faith, these trials, this proving of your faith be more precious than gold. As you're tested by fire, as your, as your faith grows, it results in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Like this whole picture is about salvation. And the whole what, salvation, what, what is that? See, for me, I, I went through years, like I was raised in a, I always say I was raised in, in a sort of a religious home. My mom was a, it was an alcohol. My biological mom was an alcoholic. I, I, I probably confuse everybody here. The lady I refer to as my mom today is my ex-stepmom who raised me from age like two, but really 12 when I came to live with her. So my ex-stepmom is my mom. Then when I refer to my mom, biological mom, this is the lady who was very religious, was an alcoholic, and very, very abusive to us in the home. She's passed away now. The last time I saw her is when I uh, had to testify against her in court to, get, to allow my dad to get custody of us. And so I grew up with this real bad taste for religion. It was a very, um, what's the term they use? Uh, we're not it here. I'm like the worst pastor when it comes to talking about religious things. Um, liturgical is the word I was looking for. Very liturgical church. And... And so I kind of grew up with this idea that Christianity equaled sort of moral living or morality, and then I would see hypocrisy. I'm sure all of us have faced this. Oh, I don't like Christians because it's a bunch of hypocrites. Well, see, that understanding is a, is a misunderstanding of what Christianity is. But I had it. They're all a bunch of hypocrites because you're, you're pitching this, this morality but yet, none of you are really moral people. Like, you can kind of fake it on the surface, but deep down, you're not. And so then I left morality and went into my own world of drinking, partying, doing whatever, until my world fell apart in 1995 after a night of drinking, and I ran for the police. And for those of you who have heard the story, I apologize. You're probably sick of hearing it. But the problem is I only have one salvation story. <laughs> I only have my story. <laughs> so I got to tell it all over, you know. Like I, uh... And so I ran from the cops to the San Diego Sheriff's Department. I was drunk as a skunk. They didn't get me that night, but they were able to get me. That led to me losing my security clearance. And if you don't have your security clearance as a SEAL, your whole world falls apart. I lost everything. My identity was that I was a SEAL. And now that identity was gone. And I had that stinking friend who kept asking me, will you go to church with me? Will you go to church with me? There's free pizza. There's what? <laughs> There's free pizza? Okay, I'll give it a shot just once, but promise me that you'll never ask me to go again. And so I went. And I'm thankful that he invited me to a church that's like this church where they just teach books of the Bible at a time. And so I went there taking notes. I Well, I went there for the free pizza, but in my mind, I was taking notes. Everything that the pastor said, I was debating him in my mind. And, but I kept going back. And I, it was, the best I can tell it was for the pizza. 
And, and over the course of a matter of months of just the Bible being taught, I sort of came to terms with the reality is the Bible wasn't teaching morality. Certainly there is that there's implications. You believe something, there are implications. Because next week we're going to get into verse 13. Therefore, prepare, prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it goes into all of these things about how you're to live your life. But see, it wasn't teaching morality. See, Christians aren't perfect. We strive for a certain lifestyle. We want to honor Christ. But the person who's been redeemed understands I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm no better than anybody. In fact, if I'm honest with you, I know my heart and I'm really a bad person. And so I started listening in this whole concept of relationship. That Jesus did everything for me. There was nothing for me to do. It wasn't about earning my way to be right with God. It was simply that it was finished. And I could place my faith in him and he would take care of the rest. I don't know if you guys ever have those dreams. I'm weird. Like I say this. That's like one of my, my points in every week is I'm weird. I, uh, do you guys have dreams where you like feel like you're just falling out of the sky? Does that happen to anybody else? A couple people do, yeah. Those dreams, they used to horrify. Like, I would, I would uh, have those dreams, and you wake up in a panic, and you're like, oh, land, good, I'm fine, I'm good. But then I became like, certified in free fall, and so then I had my dreams. They're like, let's just take this all the way out. Like, what will happen? Like, let's, but I still always wake up. I was trying to, in my dreams, always do the roadrunner thing, you know, where you step off at the last minute. I have yet to be able to pull that off in my dream. That's one of my goals in life, is to be able to do that. Um, that and walk on water, which I shared with you earlier. Both are related. Um, so my life, it wasn't a dream. My life was falling rapidly. And it was during this time that my friend kept nagging me and through a number of people were sharing the gospel with me. Where I finally, at some point or some understanding, I got that it wasn't about works. It was I needed Jesus so that I wouldn't go splat upon my death. See, when they, I went to free fall school and they were teaching me how to pack the parachutes and how to wear it, nobody ever told me, well, the Army's not nice anyhow, and they don't like Navy guys, so that's a whole other story, but they never said, hey, guys, we're going to teach you how to pack your parachute, how to wear it, so that, man, it's like those people in first class, they think they get a comfortable flight. Man, you put this parachute on, you're going to have the most wonderful flight of your whole life. It's so comfortable, and you're going to put it on. It's going to be just awesome. That's not what they say. They say you need to follow each and every step. You need to make sure that everything's on tight because this is going to save your life from hitting the ground at a very fast speed. And so I pack that parachute. I'm not, there are some guys who like to roll the nose in so that you get a little soft opening. I want everything. I want when that parachute opens, I want my boots to fly off because it's so like hard. I cinch down the crotch strap so I can barely walk because I don't want to slip out of the parachute upon opening. 
But see, a lot of the time, people come to Christ and they think, you know what, your life's going to get better. You're gonna, all your re- relational problems are going to be solved. You're going to get a job. You'll do whatever. And see, what happens is then you come to Christ and it actually creates a huge division in your family because now you're different and now your life is harder. You, it could create a huge division in your marriage. It could create a division with all your friends. It may even cause a division with your vocation. And so you put on Christ because you think life's going to be more comfortable and you find out, well, life gets a little more uncomfortable. And so then you walk away from Jesus. But see, if you come to Christ because you recognize that you're a sinner and God is holy, and if we want fair with God, that means his wrath is going to come and you're going to make a payment for your sin. But then he says, the God who says, I'm holy and I have wrath coming for you, says, I sent my son to die for you, to pay for your sins and your iniquity so that you might have life today. That changes everything when you put on Jesus. So then you can greatly rejoice when various tribulations and trials come your way because I didn't come to Christ so that my life would get better. I came to Christ because I was a sinner and I needed some saving. I am thankful for the Catholic priest that drilled that into my head from an early age when I was a kid and I would go to Mass and I would get communion. There was always one priest that when it was time for communion, normal people get one wafer. He would always hand me like six wafers and he says, boy, you need it. Little did he know. And so all of this, going back to 1 Peter 1.8, this all ties in. It's all about loving Jesus. Look at verse 8, and though you have not seen him, Peter writes this. He's not talking about himself. Peter walked with Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He spent the three years with him making all sorts of mistakes, constantly being redeemed and restored even after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Remember the whole, I'll never deny you, and Jesus says, before the night is over, you will deny me three times. Peter was a broken man that was restored, and yet he looks at these people who he's writing to, to us, you have not seen him. None of us in this room have seen, touched, felt Jesus like Peter and Thomas and all of the disciples did. He says, you have not seen him, but you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. See, I've never seen him. But I've met him. I've come to know him. My love for him has grown. The day I came to, to trust in Jesus, whenever it was, like uh, between 1995 and 1996, during that two years, somewhere in there, I became a Christian. It's been almost 20 years. And I guarantee you, I love him way more today than I did back then because I've seen him prove faithful time and time and time again comforting me, assuring me his grace is sufficient. And as we get to know him, you develop your relationship with him. And even though we've not seen him, you still love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you greatly rejoice with his joy inexpressible. And it's, there's something about joy that you can see in other people's lives that's just like, you know, can't put my finger on it, but there's something about you. 
as I've traveled the world and had the pleasure of meeting Christians from around the world, it always, and this is where I'm, I just said that Rick, this is where I'm going to get stuff thrown at me. There is something about meeting little old ladies who are Christians around the world. As I, it doesn't matter where I've been, when I meet somebody who's old, and it could be a man who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I don't speak their language, there's something in their eye that if you're in America or you're in Spain or you're in Mongolia, there's something that is the same. And it's a joy that's indescribable that they have because they know their Lord, our Lord. It's beautiful. And so from this, Okay, obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, pointing to the forward, pointing forward, verse 10, as to the salvation. I told you the theme was salvation. It started from verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Right before that, there's the word salvation, our relationship with God. We can rejoice. He starts describing the process of sanctification. He ends with this outcome of your faith that it's leading towards you're saved from the day you believe. But there's something about consummation, like through death, that there's going to be a complete salvation. You'll be freed from your sin nature. And in verse 10, he writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know the person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted. I want to put this in simple terms. Peter says, guys, you live in a very special era, dispensation, time in history, whatever you want to call it, that we today who are believers in Christ, we have full revelation that God has given from Genesis to Revelation. But what Peter's saying is, see, when Jesus came on scene, the whole John the Baptist, the whole New Testament hadn't been written yet. And he says from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus was prophesied over and over and over and over again. These men who are led by the Spirit, who made these prophecies, they didn't fully understand. It it said they made careful searches and, and, and inquiries seeking to know. Like they knew they were prophesying about the Messiah coming, that the Spirit of the Messiah was within them for telling these prophecies, but they didn't have a clue. See, look at the very end of verse 11. It says, within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow. They knew they were prophesying something, but they just didn't know what. See, we look back and we can read the Old Testament and go, oh, look at Jesus there. Look at Jesus there. It's the story of redemption seamlessly from Genesis to Revelation. But see, there's something called progressive revelation. We've been revealed, there's been a whole lot more revealed to us in this day and age than like Isaiah the prophet during his time in history. He only had a little sliver, and yet God was using him to make these great prophetic statements. And they didn't quite understand. But verse 12 is beautiful. It says, What they it was revealed, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. That's us. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
This is be- and if you really want to back up, I'm limited on time. But it just sort of struck me, you know, like Isaiah 53, the suffering prophet, all this. He wrote these things. He didn't understand what he wrote. I- I'm sure that as he wrote them down through the Spirit, he pondered them. It's like, well, I don't know fully what these mean. But I know that I'm, I'm writing it for somebody else in the future. And when you look at history, Isaiah in particular, which comes to mind, is critics of the Gospels will say that the text has been um, compromised. And yet when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, what book did they find? Isaiah. Like, I can say 100% pure. It's like 99.9 out to infinite infinity that it was pure. And to think that in making that discovery, that it suddenly they're like, oh, man, there's been no compromise to, to this book, which we hold, which is thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years old, that critics say it's compromised. And yet it just happens, the Dead Sea Scrolls surfaced in modern history, and the copy that they found from 2,000 years ago is word for word of the text that we hold in our very scriptures. It's amazing. And Peter says, guys, we live in a special time. Don't take the salvation that you have for granted. And the last phrase that really caught my, things into which angels long to look. We sang this song that I've known for a really long time, I discovered it like three days ago in my study. Probably six months ago, I heard somebody talking about the idea that angels just don't, they can never understand salvation. The Bible tells us that that angels were created way back when for the purpose of worshiping God. Satan led a number of the angels. Satan was a high angel and a third of them fell from heaven. They're in their permanent state. What, what, what happened back then was permanent. There's no rede- redemption of angels. Angels just are. And Peter writes here, things into which angels long to look. So, so the angels look at this whole story of redemption, and they just can't fathom it. And that this is the song that was sung that I stumbled across. There is singing up in heaven such as we have never known, where the angels sing praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful, their voices are always clear, that we might become more like them while we serve the Master here. Holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing Redemption's story, They will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. But I hear another anthem, blending voices clear and strong. Unto him who hath redeemed us, hath brought, bought us, is the song. We have come through tribulation to this land so fair and bright. In the fountain freely flowing, he hath made our garments white. Then the angels stand. And listen, for they cannot join the song. Like the sound of many waters by that happy blood-washing throng. For they sing about great trials, battles fought, and victories won. And they praise their great Redeemer who has said to them, well done. 
So although I'm not an angel, yet I know that over there I will join a blessed chorus that the angels cannot share. I will sing about my Savior, who upon dark Calvary freely pardoned my transgressions, died to set a sinner free. It's beautiful. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes to think that we in Christ have this redemption that the angels have never known or will never, ever know. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's a gift that's offered to you that God is, is working, seeking, trying to help you connect the dots so that you could come into eternal life through Christ. I want to end with those who are suffering. You know, we all are suffering, amen? We all suffer, we all have trials. I had a lot of trials in my life before I met Christ. And even after I met Christ, I still struggled. And I, I mean, I still struggled. Like, when I went to Mongolia in 2010, they were having a little missionary party for like the eight missionaries that were in Mongolia. And I was allowed to be in this group as they said goodbye to one of their missionaries. And so they started to sing a couple of hymns and they um, started singing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And I remember, like I'm trying not to do right now, I remember just breaking down crying. And so I tried to look more spiritual by bowing my head so they couldn't see me. But I couldn't see because I was crying. And I remember distinctly sensing that God told me, I didn't hear his voice, but I, I had this feeling of God saying, Gunnar, I've taken your anger and your resentment and your bitterness and I've exchanged it for tears. And I can tell you, for those of you who are hurting, that the only way to get through your bitterness, anger, resentment, hurting, and pain is to turn it, into, turn it over to Jesus. And in him, there's rejoicing. Rejoice with, an inex, with joy inexpressible. And for those of you who know Christ, who are going through suffering, I would encourage you to turn to him, to, to, to pray to him, to worship him. As he told Paul, I believe he is telling all of us that his grace is sufficient to get us through whatever trial it is that you're going through. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this great truth. Father, we thank you that in the midst of life's various trials, the suffering and pain and sorrow that we endure here on this life. Father, we thank you that we know you're greater. Father, I want to pray for those in this room who maybe don't know you as Savior. Lord, I pray whatever it is that they need, Lord, for the gospel uh, to become a reality in their life, Lord, I pray that you would help them, that they could reach out in belief, and trust upon you. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. We thank you that in the midst of these sorrows, we can have joy. We long for this day when we're free of uh, the stain of sin, the hurt, the pain, and the agony of, of things in this life. 
We praise you, Lord, for you are good to us. We thank you for this great salvation that we have in Christ. Amen.